Hello and welcome to the St. Mark's podcast. Whether you regularly join us at church on Sundays or you're joining us for the very first time, we hope that this week's talk inspires you and draws you closer to Jesus. Welcome to our, um, our next instalment of uh, our Seeing Jesus um, series, uh, where we're looking through the windows of the Old Testament to see where Jesus has been present all through Scripture. Um, it's uh, sometimes said that Jesus Christ in, is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. And we want to get a, a clearer overview of the Bible so that we can have an experience of God um, that uh, is revealed to us through the Scriptures. So last week we were looking at a thing called the Messianic prophecies. In, in, in other words, 300 or so different foretellings of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus before he was even Born, And we were looking at Isaiah 53 uh, to look at that. And today we're going to look at uh, a theme called covenant within the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and I want to talk today about the covenant that you simply cannot keep. The covenant that you simply cannot keep. And as we've explored in our Patterns series, many of the battles we face today in our lives uh, began at the very beginning of the Bible, in a garden called Eden, where the patterns of heaven were perfect, where people, Adam and Eve, enjoyed being in the presence of God in their lives. And things went rather bad, and the patterns of heaven fell into patterns of sin and death and decay. And we've been living with the consequences of that ever since. Now, you know this because I say that almost at the beginning of every sermon that I do. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you haven't, then um, I need to maybe spice these up a little bit. Um, But uh, the story of the Bible is the story of God pursuing the human race, pursuing us ever since that point, and longing for a relationship with us, to be with us. But God also knows that any relationship uh, that's to be had, for any relationship to work, there has to be commitment. Now, for some people, when you talk about or think about commitment in relationships, uh, they freak out. They think, oh my goodness, just the thought of it makes them run a mile, the thought of having to commit to something like that. It's almost seen as being oppressive, uh, as if it ties you down. However, commitment is absolutely foundational for any relationship that is going to involve love and vulnerability. And I think back just to the other week when we married Sarita and Dale right here in St. Mark's church. And I was spelling out how their commitment to one another would get them through the difficult days in their relationship and stops them going after someone else when they've had a fallout with their spouse. And commitment, as scary as it sounds in this day and age, is made a reality in a thing that we call covenant. For some of you, you're already checking your watches and uh, seeing uh, if you can work out when the coffee is going to be served, because the thought of a sermon on covenant is, uh, is sending you to sleep, making you switch off. But keep with me, because it's not as dry as it sounds. This sort of covenant is not about legal technicalities uh, that only interest lawyers. It's about the making of a contract that forms safe boundaries for a relationship of mutual love and trust between God and his people. That's what we're talking about, the covenant, the, uh, the contract, if you like, between God and his people. And if we take the example of marriage. When you have a wedding service, especially for a Christian marriage, um, the whole service is rich with language about love and joy and togetherness and all that sort of stuff. And we do the vows and we exchange the rings and we worship the God who is love. 
And then you get to the bit where the couple come together and they sign the register. Now, I can tell you that just from the other week, this wasn't a moment in the service where people just clocked off and zoned out because they thought it was all getting a little bit legalistic. The signing of the contract is a wonderful moment that makes the covenant between the two people, the commitment between one another in the presence of God, and it makes that the reality. The same goes for adoption. If you've ever adopted or known someone who's adopted children, there's a very, very lengthy process of interviews and paperwork and meetings and all of that stuff. And the signing of the covenant is a beautiful moment where people become parents and a child is welcomed in to a loving home. It's a deep and powerful thing. And it's needed for a loving relationship to flourish. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you because God is not looking for people to follow a religion, but because he longs for a loving relationship with you. And his commitment to you is equally marked by a covenant agreement. And this is why it's important. When we look at the Bible, we can split it into two halves, two sections. We have uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, within this context, testament means covenant. So we actually have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant covenant. They're both the same, and yet it's different when it comes to the signing of the covenant contract. So let me just begin with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And here we're given two different pictures, illustrations of what covenant looked like within the scriptures between God and his people Israel. And two pictures we're given. The first one is of a a peace treaty, and the second one is of a marriage. So let's just talk for a second about the peace treaty illustration of a covenant within the Old Testament. During ancient times, peace treaties were made between conquering kings and the people that they had just conquered. And the peace treaty was basically the terms of peace that the conqueror would make with his people. So in other words, uh, the king would say, look, if you um, serve me as king, as you, if you pay your taxes, if you don't swap me out for another king, then in exchange, I will allow you to live in the land, I'll protect you from your enemies, and uh, I will basically look after you the best I can. But if you break that covenant, that peace treaty, then I will withdraw my protection from you, and I'll probably just punish you anyway, because that's the sort of brutal world that they lived in in the ancient days. Not much has changed, but there we are. And I don't know about you, um, but it's really no different to some contracts we enter into today. I I have a, a mobile phone contract. I'm sure you probably have some sort of contract like that as well. And the concept is very simple. You see a shiny new phone. It all looks very exciting. It has lots of cameras. It doesn't have many buttons. You're tempted in. And the next thing you know, you've signed yourself into a contract. And, and, and the provider says, I will provide you with this flashy phone. But in exchange, uh, you are going to be tied into a contract for three years, paying us £50 every month for the privilege of it. And, uh, you know, even today, you don't even need to sign that contract with a pen. You just have to say, gimme, 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 and suddenly that's it. You're tied into this contract. But in the ancient world, the way you actually signed the contract looked quite different. And this is a little bit gory, but I thought I'd share it with you anyway. The way a contract was signed was by taking an animal as a sacrifice, cutting it up into pieces, sorry if you're vegetarian or vegan, and you would place it between the king and the people on the floor. And then the king would walk through the pieces of the animal sacrifice there on the ground towards his people, and it represented the signing of this new contract. 
I can't really imagine that happening in the e-store in Freshney Place. You know, you go to sign your mobile phone contract and you're like chopping up meat and you're like, I'm going to walk through the contract and then you're shaking hands on it. It's all very exciting. I think it would be one way to bring in a bit of extra footfall into Freshney Place. But it's not how we do things anymore. But we do see this happening in the contract, the covenant between God and Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. His name was Abraham back then. And he made a covenant. And the deal was this. The deal for Abraham was you leave your country and you leave your people and you go to a land that I'm going to provide you. God's going to provide for you. And God's part of the deal was to make Abraham into a great nation to bless him and make him a great blessing. And do you know what? Abraham, even though he'd only had this sort of short encounter with this deity, uh, decided he was going to go for it and, and go for the deal. And this is what we read in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And the covenant was sealed by placing pieces of the animal sacrifice for God to pass through towards his people. Uh, this is it, 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. So the Lord God said to him, to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them into two, uh, and arranged them, arranged the halves opposite each other. And then Abraham falls into a deep sleep, sleep, and the Lord spoke to him through a dream. So there we have it, this uh, contract being signed in this, what we think is quite a bizarre fashion. But then hundreds of years later, God appears again to a man called Moses. And being true to his word, uh, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. Remember, God's part of the deal was, I will protect you. I will bring you peace. So God rescues his people, and he renews the contract that he made with Abraham. So uh, we see that in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were simply a way of ensuring that there would be security and good health and abundance for the people. Everything they weren't getting in the land of Egypt, where there were slaves. And, and the part of the deal for Israel was that, you know, uh, they wouldn't worship idols. They wouldn't swap out God for another God. Uh, they, they would treat each other fairly and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but this was the issue. The people of Israel didn't stick to their part of the deal. And because they broke off the contract, there was a penalty clause for breaking the contract early, if you like, or they just couldn't really keep, keep to it. And so God withdrew his protection from his people, Israel, and he stopped providing for them. I'm going to come back to that bit in just a moment. But there we have it, another covenant contract, a renewal of a contract between God and his people. And then God does the same again later on down the line with a king called King David. And in 2 Samuel 17, God renews his promises and he makes a new one. Just draw your mind back to last week, those messianic prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus walked on the earth. Here's another one for you as God makes and renews this covenant vow with King David. And uh, this is 2 Samuel 17. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days, that's David's days are over and you rest with your ancestors, you're dead, I will raise up your, offering to, your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, if you know these bits of the scriptures, you'll know that David's son Solomon did succeed him on the throne. But there was also a deeper meaning to this. 
Because the descendant whose throne he would establish forever was not Solomon, because Solomon uh, died, as we humans do. It was Jesus. It was the throne of Jesus that would be built and established forever. Jesus is the son of the father. Now, as you may have picked up in our series so far, many generations in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, failed to keep their part of the covenant deal. The whole testament is like, love God, serve God, fall away from God, betray God, love God, serve God, betray God. And in between, God is renewing this covenant, drawing his people back to him. And uh, they keep failing their part in the covenant deal. They keep going back and worshipping false gods. They keep going back and treating one another unjustly. They're generally just unfaithful people. So God keeps coming back again. He keeps sending his prophets to the people to call them back. God keeps sticking to his part of the bargain that the people keep falling away. And and, and the penalty clause uh, comes into force. And the people are are stricken off. They're sent off into exile. They don't hear from God for hundreds of years. And sure enough, the presence and the protection of God is removed from the people. They lose the land that they're living in. The temple that is built under Solomon is destroyed and taken from them. Jerusalem falls. It looks like it's the hopeless end for the people. It looks like the end of the contract. That is a contract that looks a bit like the peace treaty. But it also looks a bit like a marriage contract, a marriage covenant too. It gives us the same view of the depth of this covenant, but from a slightly different angle. So why marriage? Well, God is the God who brought his people out of slavery and renewed his covenant with them. And at that point, he basically, as good as, marries his people. That might sound a little bit weird, but let me just read this verse from Exodus 6-7. This is what we read. God's saying this. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. I will take you as my people, I will be your God. There's a depth in, and there's more to it than just one verse, of course. But God says, we are going to be one. I will be yours, you will be mine. This will be a relationship marked by love and by blessing. And it gets to the very heart of covenant. It says it's not about a dry written contract, it's about the depth of a relationship. And the imagery used throughout Scripture is that of uh, a marriage ceremony or of uh, the bride of Christ, this relationship. God is marrying his bride. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he commits to us. We are his bride. We are his people. And what's amazing about God's love is how he keeps taking back an unfaithful bride time and time again. We see his people, his bride, falling away from him, rejecting him, worshipping other gods, going off with others, and yet God continuously draws them back home. This is the God who finds a broken, filthy, dirty, wretched, abandoned people lost amongst themselves and still calls out, still steps out to rescue them and to protect them. And yet still they reject him time and time again. They do all sorts of crazy things. If you read the Old Testament, they go as far as sacrificing their own children to foreign gods. It's a completely bonkers story, but it tells you just how far the people fall away from the God of love. And that leads us nicely to our reading for today, which comes towards the end of this. It leads us nicely into this text from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And it's in the midst of the exile, where God has withdrawn his protection from the people. 
that God still makes a remarkable promise to them and gives them a fresh hope. So this is what is spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It would not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with my people Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Do you see how some of those threads start to come through this? The depth of relationship that God longs for for his people. And now his people are stricken and rejected, and yet God speaks through hope into the hopelessness. So that was the old covenant. And God says, I'm not going to repeat the old covenant. It's not really working, is it? I'm going to form a new covenant, a new promise. Now, if God came to me and said, Matt, I really need your advice. I tell you now, he doesn't, and he wouldn't. But, but hypothetically, stick with me, if he did. I might say to God, God, forget it. Learn your lesson and don't bother with this covenant thing. You'll only get hurt. Or else, or else I might suggest that God makes it a little bit easier for his people. You know, take a more liberal approach. Maybe you'll say to the people, do whatever you like, live however you want, just don't hurt each other. But we know in practice that just doesn't work. Because what I want when I live as an individual uh, it doesn't mean we all live in peace. We end up hurting each other because we end up living selfish lives. So that's not really going to work. But I might say to God, well, I'll tell you what, how about instead of the 10 commandments, yeah, they were quite strict, why don't we go for the 10 polite suggestions? Yeah, more catchy. Perhaps you soften the penalty clause. Hmm? How about community service rather than exile? You know, then we can just sort of get back on track a bit quicker, yeah? Less of the heartbreak. But you see, the problem with God's covenant is that the covenant, it's the covenant that you simply cannot keep. God sets this covenant, this marker, and we just can't keep it. But thank God that I'm not his advisor, because God didn't do that. He stuck with the very high obligations in the new covenant. He retained the penalty clause in the new covenant, but he updated the terms and conditions. In this new covenant, God didn't make the agreement with us because we just can't keep it. There was no chopping of meat for him to walk over towards us. Instead, he made a contract, but he made it with himself. God the Father and God the Son shook hands on the deal. And this is how it works. And we see this in the New Testament, the New Covenant, in a book called Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the New Covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So if the Old Testament was like a peace treaty or a marriage, we might say that the new covenant is more like a will. It's basically the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, in a way. So why a will? Picture the scene. Rich uncle dies... 
Everyone's gathered around after the wake, and they're going to hear the will being read out. And everyone's there, and they're wondering who's going to get the Bentley, and who's getting that hideous side table from the bedroom. And the will is read out, and basically it turns out that everything has been left to you. The inheritance is all yours. And here's why. In the last will and testament of Jesus, or as we're describing it, he really has left it all to you. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 8, sums it better than I can, says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the, that's the opener. For he chose us, that's you and me, before the creation of the world, before the old covenant was even established, to be holy and blameless in his sight. That didn't work so well for humanity, but this is the reality that he lays down for us. So, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. He wanted to adopt you to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, that is Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, that's Jesus on the cross. We have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In other words, it's all ours. The inheritance is ours, not because of what we have done, but because of him. And this reality, this truth, sets us free from all insecurities around who we are and whose we are and, and even what happens when I die or am I good enough to inherit eternal life. Because when we start to take this amazing news in that the inheritance is ours, we have no more issues trusting whether God really does include us in his will or whether God is going to jump ship and abandon us because of who we are. We worship the God who welcomes us home despite our failures and the God who keeps his part of the deal. The picture of the will is remarkable because the person who receives the inheritance has nothing to do with brokering that the worthiness of, of being the recipient of that amazing gift. You don't need to have high church attendance. You don't need to be a good religious person. You don't need to have a continuous streak on Bible in one year. And that's because Jesus has fulfilled his obligation of the covenant on the cross. It is on the cross that Jesus paid the inevitable penalty clause for our failings. And all we have to do is receive the benefits, that is the grace of God. The covenant is secure because it's made and kept by God himself. He knew we could never keep it. He knew we would never get there. So he made the deal with himself and Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty clause. And everything is ours, as if we had kept our part of the deal. And what about God's commands? What does that mean for us now? Can we ignore everything that God has laid down for us? No. We find ourselves obeying because, not because we're obliged to, but because we are responding to God's love for us. We choose to obey God's trustworthy and loving commands for our lives because uh, they exist to protect us from harm. They exist to strengthen our relationship with God, the God who loves us. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we love him, we'll want to keep his commandments because they're good for us. So let me just ask you this. Which covenants are you living under today? Are you living under the old covenant, 
No matter how hard you try, you just can't keep it. You just can't get there. There's just too much striving. You're not good enough. You're not sure if you're going to make it. Or are you living in the amazing grace of God, secure in his love, secure in your identity in him, confident of your salvation and living in his glory? The choice is yours to accept the inheritance planned for you since the beginning of time. I'd encourage you to do just that. I'd just love to share with you a quick story of a man who discovered that for himself, that you couldn't live by the old covenant, but that the new covenant sets you free. And it's the story of a man called John Newton. You may have heard of him before. He lived between 1725 and 1807. John was a militant, militant atheist. He was a bully and a blasphemer. He was a wild and angry young man. He was press-ganged into the Navy at the age of 18 when he broke the rules so recklessly that he was publicly flogged for desertion. He was hated and feared by crewmates, and he himself became a slave trader. At the age of 23, Newton's ship encountered a severe storm off the coast of Donegal and almost sank. He called out to God as the ship was filling with water, and on that day, 10th of March, 1748, God rescued him. He began a new life. He started to pray and read the Bible. Eventually, he joined a man called William Wilberforce in the campaign to abolish the slave trade and became a leading light in the campaign. If you've never heard of John Newton before, you may know a hymn that he wrote. It goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. That's his invitation to us too. It doesn't matter what our life has been like before. It doesn't matter what we thought about our part in the covenant. The new covenant is an invitation to step into the amazing grace of God, to come home to him, to be adopted into his family, to receive the inheritance that he planned for you from the beginning of all time. I wonder what that would look like for you and for Grimsby. Are people set free from guilt and shame? Are people finding healing from the effects of broken relationships, from negative generational cycles and from the grip of poverty? A place where we see the church as a hospital, not a club for the preservers of religious goods and services. A place where we experience the love of God, where people say it feels like home. We'd see a scattering Throughout the week, walking lightly, not because our lives are all sorted, they're not, but because we know we're children of God and we know that we're lined up for an inheritance beyond anything a rich uncle could leave us. And there's more than enough to go round, an infinite amount to go round, a people who are grounded in the hope of Christ. We'll see greater things than slave traders like John Newton turning around and abolishing slavery. We'll see people like you and me restitching the, the, the patterns of Eden over Grimsby, advocating for positive change, speaking out over our children and young people a message of hope for the rights of the least, the lost, the forgotten. I wonder, would you come and pray with us on Monday as we gather for Kingdom Come to pray for just that, for the kingdom of heaven to break through? That's tomorrow evening, 7 p.m. right here. Folks, under the new covenant, as we are, we should never, ever doubt his love. We should never doubt our status in him. Never doubt your salvation. 
If you've come to Christ, if you've confessed with your lips that he is Lord, if you've placed your trust in him, then you are in his will and every blessing is yours for eternity. This is the covenant you simply cannot keep, but he can. I invite you to stand. We're going to pray. Take a moment to respond. Every week, we just take a moment, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and to stir us. He's already stirring us. He'll already be speaking to us. And just to welcome him to come and change our hearts and show us how we need to take the next step. You might just find it helpful to put your hands out. I do. Just as a way of receiving. And we pray, would you come, Holy Spirit, Come, Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us. Come, Holy Spirit.